Specialty Stories, session number 145. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I have an amazing guest talking about rheumatology today, a great and often overlooked specialty on the path to becoming a physician. Now, if you don't know what Specialty Stories is, I have conversations with physicians about their specialty, how they got there, what they like, what they don't like. So if this is your first time joining us, thank you for being here, and hopefully you'll stay and listen to all of the other episodes as well. If you're a pre-med student, don't forget to check out the Pre-Med Years podcast, the MCAT podcast, the MCAT Cars podcast, as well as many other podcasts at premedpodcast.com. Today we have Dr. Mohammed Ursani, a rheumatologist who has been practicing now for three years, talking about his journey to rheumatology. We start the conversation with Dr. Usani talking about how he got into rheumatology. I was probably in my second year of residency. Um, I initially wanted to do, um, I have a background in molecular biology, so I initially wanted to do um, hematology, oncology, um, because at the time there was a lot of um, immune targeting and uh, kind of advances in chemotherapy that was starting to become a little bit more involved in molecular biology and immunology. Um, and then in residencies, when I got exposed to rheumatology and absolutely fell in love with it, because I realized it was within that same realm of molecular biology as well as immunology and, and targeting and um, modifying cellular response and things like that. So um, looking at the lifestyle and looking at the disease processes, it's probably what kind of jumpstarted me into looking at room as opposed to hematology oncology. What was it when you were going through medical school, the, the branch into internal medicine versus maybe something like surgery or something else? Did, did, were there any other specialties before internal medicine as you were going through that process that were like, Oh, maybe I'd be interested in that. Um, not really, to be honest with you. I, I knew I didn't want to do surgery. Um, as probably when I rotate through medical or through my general surgery rotation in medical school, um, I never liked going to anatomy lab in terms of, <laughs> you know, dissecting nerves and dissecting muscles and memorizing things. I just thought it was a little bit more just straight verbatim memorization, which didn't yeah. really float my boat. But um, versus physiology really interested in me because it made sense to me mm-hmm. and I could predict a response if I tried to understand a pathway of why things were happening. Um, so, you know, outside of internal medicine, honestly, that I didn't really have an interest otherwise. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What do you think, what, what character traits or skills or something do you, do you think lead to someone being a good rheumatologist? So I, I think the, the really interesting thing and sometimes a frustrating thing about rheumatology is that there's a huge gray zone with every pathology and with every case. Um, And so because of that, you kind of always have to have an inquisitive personality and you always have to be thinking outside the box as opposed to just being confined inside the box. 
Um, there's not one specific test that will diagnose one specific thing. There can be a lot of overlap conditions. There would be a lot of seronegative conditions, meaning um, conditions that can still be diagnosed without a specific test or a specific antibody. So I think just kind of always keeping your guard, guard up and always um, thinking of other possibilities, even though someone has an established condition. Um, I think that's important to have personality wise, um, as opposed to just being very straightforward with everything. Mm. Interesting. What are some of the, the, or what is the biggest myth or misconception that you see, uh, from medical students, pre-meds, internal medicine docs about rheumatology? So I think from, uh, internist perspective, um, it has to do with, um, going back to the point that I was hitting earlier, where a lot of people think one test will diagnose one condition. Like patients will come to me and say their internist told them they have lupus because, for example, they have a positive ANA test. So that happens quite frequently, which undoing that mentality or undoing that thought process that patients have is very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing is in terms of medical students and residents, for some reason, I think a lot of the stigma around rheumatologic conditions has to do with people, since they're chronic conditions, people feel like they never get better or they feel like these are debilitating conditions and people have a poor quality of life, which especially this day and age, it's, it's not true because there's so many different conditions that have um, different treatments and people can live a relatively normal or good, um, you know, quality of life, yeah. which a lot of the time kind of goes under the rug just because of the history of these rheumatic conditions and the dramatic pictures people see of end-stage rheumatoid or end-stage you know, scleroderma or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So you're out in the community. What's what sorts of patients, diseases, pathologies are you seeing out in the community as a rheumatologist? Oh gosh, um, I actually did my training at Baylor, which is in the medical center, mm -hmm. and I thought that the most of the kind of oddball cases I would see, I would end up seeing during my training at a larger academic center. But honestly, I've seen, if not as much, but probably more. Um, really rare kind of overlap conditions in the community. I mean, I've seen anything from bread and butter rheumatoid you know, arthritis or bread and butter lupus to things like IgG4-related disease or scleroderma vascularized overlaps, things that are definitely case report, you know, publishable, which I, I didn't expect at all. Yeah. So so what are the, some of those things that you're seeing? In terms of the rare Conditions? No, just in general, for, so that a yeah. student kind of understands what, what it is that you do day to day. Sure. So in terms of um, the typical things, um, I, will, I will see people that walk in with bread and butter rheumatoid arthritis. Generally, their complaints are um, prolonged stiffness, prolonged joint pain, um, maybe a little bit of swelling um, that's usually unresponsive to um, conserved treatments such as, you know, acetaminophen or uh, non-steroidal drugs, um, ibuprofen, Motrin, whatever you want to use. Um, and generally, the patients are much younger as compared to the more typical osteoarthritis patient, which is um, a little bit more, you know, into their 60s or 70s or whatever it is. Um, and then you also get, an, you know, the, the other end of the spectrum where you have people that have a condition like IgG4-related disease, which is basically an inflammatory response and overproduction of a cell called plasma cells. 
And it's to a point where there is no ICD-10 code for it. So it's very difficult to, um, to get some of these therapies approved just because if it's so rare that it doesn't have the ICD-10 code, then you have to kind of jump through loops with insurance to actually treat these conditions. But it goes back to my initial um, comments about rheumatology of always having your, your ears perked up a little bit to make sure that you're not missing anything and always thinking outside the box before someone goes, you know, becomes misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. Yeah, that, that was my next question is kind of what percentage of these patients are coming diagnosed, but it sounds like a large percentage of the time they're, they're coming with a diagnosis that eventually you are probably uh, unwinding. Correct. So a lot of the times patients either come for second opinions or they come with a prior diagnosis um, that is actually not accurate. Um, sometimes people will say that they've been told that they have rheumatoid arthritis because they've had a positive rheumatoid factor. It's, it's a blood test, um, where in reality they have, you know, hepatitis C related arthritis or hemochromatosis or Sjogren's syndrome, which all those things can have a positive rheumatoid factor, you know? So my point earlier about, um, kind of always keeping your ears perked up and making sure you're not completely zoned in on a diagnosis, um, without, you know, with ignoring everything else it is quite important because yeah. there's a number of patients I've picked up as, you know, having either an incorrect diagnosis or, um, have been previously undiagnosed, you know, mm. what does a typical day look like for you? So my clinic hours start at eight 30 and we usually, uh, the last appointment slot is around four o'clock. Um, most, I also take inpatient consults. So most of the time I try to do that before clinic starts. So usually, you know, if I'm rounding, I start rounding around 7.30, 7.45. The hospital is quite cl uh, close to my clinic. Um, and then I see about, I would say about 20 to 25 patients a day in clinic and usually get back home in time before the evening. It's not too terrible at all. It sounds it sounds very busy. So how how long are your appointment slots? Um, so I usually have a follow up slot between fifteen to twenty minutes, mm -hmm. and then a new patient slot is about thirty minutes or so. Okay, very cool. Do you yeah. have to take a lot of call? So luckily, one of the good things about rheumatology is that there's very little, if no, overnight uh, emergencies. Uh -huh. um, I really hand it to, you know, the cardiology and pulmonary colleagues <laughs> that, that handle that. Um, and mostly it's an outpatient, um, you know, uh, kind of branch of medicine. There, there's call in the sense of that, you know, um, there are inpatient consults and they'll call them over the weekend. Um, but it's not too, it's not unmanageable at all. It's, it's pretty reasonable. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, we travel often. Um, I spend a lot of time with family, still keep up with all my hobbies. Yeah. So lifestyle wise, it's, it's great. Yeah. What's the training path look like to become a rheumatologist? So there's for adult room, you can either do uh, internal medicine or you could do um, uh, med peds and then specialize in rheumatology. Um, adult rheumatology, and then there's also a pediatrics track where you're either pediatrics or you're med peds, and then you do pediatric room. 
um, after after residency. And rheumatology fellowships are usually two years long. Um, there are some academic um, academic fellowships. I would you know call them in terms of if you want to go into a specific study of vasculitis per se. Per se, um, there are additional fellowships that you can do which are research based, and they're at certain institutions where they're another year or two years. Um, to jumpstart your career in uh, in academic medicine or research. Yeah. What, what was the decision algorithm for you to go out into the community versus staying in academics? Um, for me, it was a lot of my decision actually was influenced by the amount of student loan burden I had. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved academics, but I didn't... Um, I wanted to keep the priority of paying off my student loans. And so when I compared the, the reimbursement or the salary um, from academics to um, some of the community uh, offers I was getting, it was kind of a one-sided, you know, offer to be honest with you. It's a big difference. Yeah, it it was a huge difference. And um, there are other great options like public service loan forgiveness, um, which I wish I knew about, you know, for a lot, a lot of the listeners that are med students or even starting the residency. Um, if that's something you're interested in, I would definitely start that from, you know, the process early on because by the time you finish residency and, uh, you know, fellowship, you know, if, whether it's five years or seven years or three years, you could knock out a lot of that 10 year period just within your training. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't get on that, um, that bandwagon, um, early enough into my career just cause I wasn't uh, aware of it. Yeah. How competitive is rheumatology? So traditionally, it was not as competitive as some of the other specialties like cardiology and GI and uh, pulmonary. Um, But if you look at the trends over the last maybe three or four years, um, it's actually been a lot more competitive. Um, There's a lot more unmatched uh, uh, applicants. Um, And I think the reason being is because the programs aren't that big um, and there's not as many slots as there would be in other fellowship programs. Um, and I think um, that because a lot of these conditions are starting to become more, um, you know, I want to say mainstream, and people are learning a lot more of these conditions, and people are having a better quality of life despite having these conditions, thanks for thank uh, thanks to the therapies that we have. I think a lot of people are paying a lot more attention to rheumatology mm-hmm. and immunology in general. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into it? Um, I wish I knew how much of a role <laughs> insurance companies play <laughs> and, and what a prior authorization was and, and the whole process, you know, at that end of the, you know, uh, I guess practice of medicine, um, having no training in that whatsoever, whether it's medical school or residency or fellowship. Um, I really think we should be training our, our students and our trainees, or at least giving them a little, a little bit of exposure in terms of what insurance companies are and how they run before you just step out into practice and are expected to know all this on your own. Yeah. So a lot, you know, I think the top, uh, the top 10 most expensive medications that came out for 2020, um, I think three or four of them were, um, you know, rheumatologic medications and so them being high cost or high dollar drugs, um, there's a lot of barriers to having them approved and being able to use them. 
Yeah. And in the meantime, it's during that process or, you know, the patients are the ones that are kind of caught in the middle of this whole process. <laughs> they're, they're caught in the middle and then they blame you because they think you're the one getting all the money. Correct. Correct. <laughs> you're, you're the face of it. Right. So. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. What, um, what do you wish the, the, the future primary care doc listening to this, who's not going to subspecialize, but is going to be that uh, internist or family practice doc, or or maybe even pediatrician out there. What what do you wish they knew about rheumatology and what you're doing day in and and day out to help their patients and help you? Sure. Um, so one thing is steroid responsiveness does not mean that someone has something inflammatory. Um, so a lot of patients or a lot of internists sometimes they tell me, well, you know, if some I give someone you know prednisone or if I give them methylprednisolone taper and they respond, you know, their joints get better. Um, so that means they have something inflammatory. And that's, <laughs> that's not always the case. I mean, yeah. someone that has osteoarthritis or someone that has bronchitis or someone that has, you know, is intubated in the ICU. A lot of the times we use steroids just, you know, as a, like a strong anti-inflammatory basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so they generally help with a lot of things outside of just, you know, inflammatory arthritis or lupus or, or whatnot. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, um, goes back to my test of, or my, uh, comments about, um, ordering tests. So just because someone has fatigue and is someone in the twenties and thirties, it shouldn't warrant you to do a rheumatologic workup. I mean, they should really have more symptoms aside from, you know, just really vague fatigue and, and a little bit of, you know, hair loss or something like that. So. I think just being more aware of the what the blood tests are and what they mean mm-hmm. um, and having a little bit more um, being a little bit more aware of what different conditions present as would be very helpful to prior to sending somebody to a rheumatologist for workup. Yeah. Out, out in the community as a rheumatologist, what other specialties or specialists are you working the closest with? So the fun thing about rheumatology is that there's a huge overlap with everything because all of our conditions are systemic. Um, so they can theoretically involve any part of the body. But, you know, frankly, I'm working with dermatologists. I'm working with um, pulmonologists, nephrologists, um, and even, op- you know, ophthalmologists for things like uveitis or, or scleritis. So it, it gets um, – it's it's a good specialty to build relationships with, especially if you're in the community because – um, a lot of the, the symptoms that people have um, might be might require, for example, a bronchoscopy to be done or, or a you know, skin biopsy to be done or you know, a renal biopsy. So it, that's one of the things I really like about rheumatology. Is it's truly a kind of multi-specialty approach. It's not just one, you know, one uh, organ focus. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a rheumatologist? Oh, by far the disease process, I, I think it's very, very, very interesting. And I think because we don't know a lot about why um, autoimmunity occurs, um, keeps things very, um, it, it encourages you to kind of keep up to date with what's going on in terms of literature and research. Um, and knowing that two patients that had the same condition may not present the same way. So, for example, someone with rheumatoid arthritis, the bread and butter version of it is someone says that they have joint pain. But there's plenty of rheumatoid arthritis patients that I have that don't have arthritic symptoms. They have uveitis or they have interstitial lung disease that's related to rheumatoid arthritis. 
So, you know, just the, the kind of the wide spectrum of the conditions and different presentations that people have kind of keeps everything so interesting. Um, and then also the satisfaction of being able to treat a lot of these people with these conditions that were known to be kind of very debilitating in nature. Um, in this day and age, being able to manage someone and having them, you know, um, going out and playing with their kids or having them being able to get back to, you know, playing sports that they used to play. Um, it's a really satisfying feeling. Yeah. What do you like the least? The least would be doing with all the paperwork and admin. <laughs> I mean, especially with, especially with uh, getting things approved and working with insurance companies um, to have medications approved. I'd yeah. probably say that's that's my least uh, least favorite part of the job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> you yeah. and everyone else. That that, that right. and charting. Uh, right. Yeah. Do you see any major changes coming to the specialty? I know there's just an explosion of medications. You'd, you'd mentioned some of the most expensive ones are for room uh, diseases. Do you see any other major changes coming to the specialty that a student coming up now through medical school or residency should be aware of? Um, I think what we're all trying to go towards is this concept of individualized medicine, right? Or personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. um, right now, generally, the way we approach you know, for example, rheumatoid arthritis is, it's kind of a, a, I don't want to say a shot in the dark, but it's kind of like that where you use um, the more, you know, the classical pathways like TNF inhibitors, such as um, adalimumab or, or etanercept, you know, uh, Humira and Enbrel. And generally that's where people start off. They use TNF therapy and there's some people that respond to it and there's some people that don't. And if they don't, you generally switch pathways. So, but there's no, um, there's no known reason why there's some people respond to it and some people don't and why some people's disease process is triggered by a certain pathway versus others is a different pathway. So I think what we hopefully will come towards or hopefully are getting towards is um, being able to kind of scan someone at baseline and say, okay, well, you're, you know, for example, rheumatoid arthritis is driven through this pathway. So I'm going to give you a medication to block that pathway as opposed to cycling through different drugs and seeing what sticks. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a rheumatologist? Oh, I love it. So absolutely I would. For the, the medical student or pre-med student or, or internal medicine resident listening to this, thinking about room, what kind of final words of wisdom do you have for them? Um, what I would say is that to increase your chance in matching, um, I would get involved with some type of, um, publication. It doesn't need to be a large journal. It doesn't need to be a large conference, but even local, um, local meetings or local ACP chapters or local state rheumatology chapters. Um, a lot of the times they take, um, poster board presentations or case reports and things like that. So one thing is to show interest in the field. Um, if you want to get more exposure to it, there's, I know rheumatology for, you know, whether it's medical students or internal medicine residents or pediatrics, um, the elective is very short. A lot of the times it's like two to four weeks. So requesting increased exposure through your program director um, or your program in general, just see if it's possible to, have a little bit more of a lengthy rotation because 
there's no way that you can get a feel of what rheumatology is in, in two weeks or, you know, four weeks at a time. Um, but otherwise it's, it's a very, um, fulfilling specialty. It's a very needed specialty is there's a lot of, uh, they're expecting a huge shortage in rheumatologists going forward. Um, so all the help is definitely, uh, welcomed. All right, there you have it again, Dr. Mohammed Ersani talking about rheumatology. Hopefully that was helpful for you, a little eye-opening, maybe a little exciting. Get your juices flowing for rheumatology. If you want to check out rheumatology, try to find a physician in the area to shadow. Go to rheumatology.org, that's the American College of Rheumatology, and see what resources they have for pre-med students or medical students. See how they can help you figure out how to get more experience in rheumatology. Hopefully this was helpful. If you have a specialty that's maybe on the fringe that I haven't thought about or haven't talked about or haven't had a guest on, let me know. You can email me, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. We're always looking for amazing guests here on Specialty Stories, and I want to thank Dr. Ursani one more time for his time talking about rheumatology. Hopefully you got a lot of great information out of the episode today. Again, rheumatology.org for more information from the American College of Rheumatology. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories where I get to have a great conversation with a transplant hepatologist. This is MedEd Media.